Episode 21 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast takes off now. What is going on, Aviation Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. My name is Justin, and I'm your host. In today's episode, I'm talking with Chris Palmer. Now, that name might ring a bell because he is the creator of AviatorCast, the Angle of Attack show, and he is a current CFI in Alaska doing some amazing things, posting some awesome pictures and some great tips on his Instagram page, at Angle of Attack. I encourage you guys to go give him a follow. He's a great CFI to learn from and to see how he chose this career and why he is a CFI. In today's episode, some of the things we talk about are part 141 versus part 61 schools. Chris has a special message for anyone thinking about becoming a CFI. How commercial training was his hardest training. How a CFI checkride was actually the easiest checkride he ever took. And Chris gives you a little tip for instrument flying. I'm very excited to talk with Chris today and share his story. Chris has an amazing story of growing up just loving aviation, being a sim geek, just knowing that aviation was what he wanted to do. And I really think that this will help any aviator at any level to continue to pursue this career. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. You can let us know at Instagram, at pilot to pilot leave a comment or DM. And you can also reach out to us via email, pilot to pilot hq at gmail.com. If you want to support this podcast, please head to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pilot to pilot We have some big things in mind and we can't do without your guys' support. Thank you for the supporters that we currently have. I appreciate you guys and thank you so much for believing in this podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast. And without further ado, here's Chris Palmer. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for having me finally. It's been a while in the making. Yeah, it has. I mean, that that just goes to show the aviation schedules and how hard it truly is to link up because we're all doing so many different things, whether you're working on your your cool TV series or your series that you have or your podcast yourself. It's just really cool that we can get this going, though. And of course, uh, flying in Alaska in the summer, you know, you've you got to spend the time while the sunlight and the warmth is here to just get out there and do it. So that's definitely kept me busy. And not only that, with Oshkosh, it just got over. It's, man, it's a whirlwind for sure. I'm sure. So let's go ahead and get started right away. Um, Kind of just want to understand why did you get into aviation in the first place? Like what made you want to fly? You know, I don't really know when the that first time was, but I just know that um, even all through my childhood, I was one of those that was playing with with uh, flying things. I remember um, being out on our trampoline in our backyard when I was a kid watching the jets fly over Delta jets actually in, uh, in Salt Lake city landing there at the main hub and just always being fascinated with that. And then at one point when I got a little more sophisticated, I was doing model airplanes and even more sophisticated beyond that. I was stuffing pyrotechnics inside the model airplanes while I was making them. And then I'd actually film them blowing up. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I always had this, uh, this thing for aviation and, uh, and, and of course that helped with, um, video gaming coming along at the exact same time. So I was playing flying video games. I remember this one called European air war and I would, I would play on that game for hours. Like I, I would start in England on a P-51 and I'd fly from there real time over to Europe and go and strafe some some Nazi bunkers or something you know <laughs> I had a lot awesome. of stick time by the time uh by the time it came around but it, it was in high school that I for some reason it clicked in my brain that I didn't have to go through the military in order to become a pilot and I already knew at that time um because of a medical condition that I 
couldn't become a military pilot that I was basically exempt. Uh, so I found out, hey, I can actually do this the civilian way. And a light went on in my brain, and I said, that's what I'm doing. And it was, uh, it all happened pretty quickly from there. Within a few months, I was in, I was in private pilot ground school my senior year of high school and just getting it done. So it, it was pretty natural. Yeah. So you would say you're, you first wanted to be a military pilot, but then you kind of found out, did some research and saw that medically, maybe you couldn't be a military pilot and then realized that, Hey, I could also do this the civilian way. Right. And I had a cousin going through a university program and of course he wasn't doing it the military route. So that's what made it click for me. And I, I started looking into that particular school, which was Utah State University. And yeah, just started to click along pretty, pretty nicely from there. And one thing I really enjoyed in the very beginning of my training is uh, I had school release. So I had already basically finished all my credits for high school to get my diploma. And I would leave half day to go do ground school, but we wouldn't just do private pilot ground school. It was a day of ground school curriculum and then a day of human factors curriculum. And I always felt like, especially after the fact, that my perspective on aviation was very interesting because we were talking about all the the physiology and psychology that goes into flying along with learning the the technical knowledge um, or the written test knowledge, if you will, of the ground school component along the way. So I always thought that was kind of an interesting serendipitous thing that happened with my training that I enjoyed and and one thing I enjoy doing now that I am an instructor, it's something I'm passionate about. Yeah, I mean, learning the human factor side of, of being a pilot is very important. And the earlier you can learn that and apply that to your knowledge, it's going to help you out as you go. So that's cool that you did it at the same time. Did you do this at Utah State as well, or was this a Part 61 school? This was at uh, Salt Lake Community College. It was the um, kind of the school release program that they had at the time. I don't think they have... Uh, an aviation program anymore. I could be wrong about that, but um, yeah, I was at Salt Lake Community College, senior year of high school, and then I went from there and did my private pilot at Utah State University. So I think actually, it, technically, everything was part 141 because even Salt Lake Community College at the time was part 141. Oh, cool. um, from then on out, the rest of my training has been part 61, but I definitely see the benefits of doing both and, and I enjoy aspects of both, both curriculums, if you will. I have a little bit of experience with part 141 and part 61 and part one, part 141 has its, like you said, it has pros and has cons. Part 61 also has pros and cons. It just, it tailors to a certain student and that's your job as a student to figure out which one's best for you. So it can work for anyone. Right. And for your listeners that, you know, the difference between um, 141 and 61 is 141 is a government regulated passed off program for a school, which is very rigid, very thorough. Uh, you typically see that in university programs or, or dedicated flight programs that are, um, are known to push students through on a professional path. Right. And then part 61 is going out to your small local airport, meeting up with an instructor and doing it that way. So it's referring to the parts of the law, I guess, if you will, that we all love, yeah, right? Yeah. That uh, that are regulating how those programs are supposed to be carried out. 
Yep, that's for sure. And sometimes, not all the time, part 141 will be more expensive and part 61 you can do cheaper, but I'm sure there are those other schools that can still be expensive part 61. So it's always important to do your research, figure out what's best for you and how you want to go down that path. And it, it you know, it's a tough battle because I remember at the time when I was going through that process, I wasn't just considering the university that my cousin was going to, you know, the one that kind of made the light bulb go on. I was looking at a lot of different places, including Embry-Riddle and Spartan College in Oklahoma. Uh, and the the trouble with the 141 stuff is from, from a marketing perspective is these people have a ton of money to push into their programs for the marketing. So, what it appears to be from the outside looking in is that the only possible way to become a pilot or a good pilot is to do it part 141. And I would even say that there is this mentality coming out of 141 schools that that is the only way to do it and that that's the right way to do it. And there, there seems to be a, there seems to be a level of that's the only way, that's the right way. If you don't do it that way, then somehow you're flawed as a pilot, which I don't think is true. There are plenty of other ways to get it done. Oh, I completely agree. I would even say I did. So I did my private pilot training part 141 at a university to the rest of my training 61. And I'd say, I mean, I loved my 141 score. I love my training, but I feel like I even got better training at part 61. I feel like I became a better pilot when it was kind of forced on me to do everything, it kind of made me grow up a little bit more. No one was holding my hand, telling me what I had to do. And what I had to do was up to me to schedule this then and figure out how I wanted to become a better pilot because there wasn't that regimented flying plan as a 141 school had. So I think that, like you said, they both have pros and cons. And just because you go 61 doesn't mean you're a bad pilot. And I think what you're talking about, that kind of ego or cockiness that you mentioned could be also stemming from the fact that, hey, we only have to have a thousand hours or 1200 hours to get hired by an airline where you have to get 1500 hours. So we're better pilots. Like, well, I mean, I actually probably have more experience and I'm probably overall an actual better pilot once I get hired by an airline. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, uh, it was interesting because when I, when I got my part 141, I was obviously a newly minted pilot. I thought that my university program was amazing. And it was, I, I think Utah state does an absolute awesome job and they, they kind of fly under the radar in terms of, you know, competing with places like UND and Embry riddle who have, you know, their major reputations. I know even Ohio state has a great program. I, is that where you got your 141 is? Yeah. Ohio I went to Ohio state. state yeah. And Ohio yeah. state just recently is starting to get more, pump more money and more They're They're the only school that owns and operates their own airport as well. So they're doing a lot of things up there, which is really cool. Yeah. So they have a great program too, a good reputation. There are a handful of others in there, but it's interesting because I, at that time I, I did have that cockiness and that ego and I went right from flying with them to my father wanting to purchase a Bonanza to fly for the family basically. And, uh, so I went to Iowa and started flying there with this guy that has, you know, tens of thousands of hours. He's kind of actually like you, he was flying DC threes and beach 18s doing, um, doing cargo, doing contract cargo work. And this was in the early 2000s. So he was really stretching those airplanes. I'm sure. (laughs) But, But just old school sort of guy. Right. And I just remember it was paradigm after paradigm that was being shifted for me flying with this guy because 
no longer was I sitting there doing a five hour flight plan on paper and, and all this stuff, but we were actually going out there and doing it and we were getting pop up IFRs and we were, um, pumping the airplane full of mo gas, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you hear about in, in flight school at 141 that, oh my gosh, if you put any other fuel in your airplane, but 100 low lead, you're going to die from detonation. <laughs> then, you know, you get these kind of blocks in your, in your brain. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy about a lot of the experiences I had in part 61. And, you know, there were some negative experiences too. I definitely learned that, uh, that not every instructor is created equal. Um, and, that the the quality of instruction and the passion that an instructor has matters a whole lot. So I'd rather have a guy that has that real world experience that has a passion for the instruction. That's where I want to be and what I want to be. So um, that's what I look for as well. Definitely. And I would even say I've, when I was coming up, I know this was kind of a problem. My uh, Our chief flight instructor at my Part 61 school in North Carolina, he was kind of telling me how there's kind of this problem that's been created for flight instructors. There is this whole, I have to get the 1,500 hours, I have to get the 1,200 hours, where these guys are becoming flight instructors just solely for the time, and they're not becoming flight instructors to help other people fly. They're not becoming flight instructors to try to instill a love for flying with their students. They're just there to get their time and go, which, I mean, I can't blame them because that's kind of a – the path that has been set out for him. But I think that in a way has come to affect some of the training and some of the flight instructors mentality and that could help and that would hurt the students in the long run. Yeah. And it, it may be blasphemy, but let me just say this to anyone right now that is thinking of becoming a CFI. If you're not passionate about it and you're not going to really take seriously the personal um, effect and relationship you have on a student, then don't do it. Just find another way to build your time don't waste other people's time. We need more professional, passionate instructors that are in the industry and and basically compensated for being such rather than people say kids teaching kids. I don't really I don't really care about that. I think there can be kids, if you will, in quotes that um, that are very great teachers. But I think the prerequisite for an instructor should be that passion to help that person. Now, they can come hand in hand. You know, you can have someone that's very passionate about wanting to teach and also wanting to build time. That's totally fine with me. But if you're just going to build time and kind of stretch someone along and not be an effective instructor, then find another way to build your time. Go, uh, go spotting or something, you know? Yeah. There are a ton of ways for people to build time. I mean, I didn't become a flight instructor because I didn't think I'd be the best flight instructor. I didn't think that like I wasn't passionate about teaching others how to fly. And that's okay if you're not, because there's different routes you can go. There's different ways you can learn how to fly. There's different ways you can hone your skills. I became an aerial surveyor and I got thrown into a a Turbo 310, 206 Aztec aerial commander. And I flew that across the whole country. And I learned so many valuable experiences in flying, whether it's how to land a plane on a mountain when you lose your engine to (laughs) why it's always important to make sure you do a proper run-up after your maintenance guy just changes the vacuum pump on your right engine and you start losing all your oil on final. So I learned so many experiences that weren't necessarily the great situations, but I learned like real life aviation things from stuff like that. Right. And truly, you know, people people kind of disparage this whole 1500 hour rule and a lot of people kind of shake their heads at 
you know, insurance requirements or whatever for flight hours or whatever it is. But there's really something to be said for that. And unless you go out there in the real world and you start doing some flying point A to point B um, under pressure from an employer, under pressure from yourself or from others, where you actually start to have to put this stuff into practice, you're really not learning yet. You know, I, I really don't think we learn very well when we're just hitting pavement in the pattern or flying in the local area. I think the real lessons start when you start stretching the legs of an airplane, again, point A to point B, just as they are meant to do. And that's where I have found also, like you, that that experiences have just really rounded out my perspective on things. And just one of those things, you got to be, you got to be safe enough. You got to have a good enough head on your shoulders because you can't plan for all the different scenarios, but you sure can. If you have a good head on your shoulders, you can, uh, you can think your way through those things and, and fly safely. Yeah. I mean, it's all about learning experiences. It's all about learning from your mistakes, learning from someone else's mistakes and how to become a better pilot. And as you said, the 1500 rule, as I look back on it, when it first came out, I was upset because I was, 40-hour pilot looking at this industry saying, oh, hey, my friends are going to hire it at 250 hours. That's all I need. And then all of a sudden, this 1,500-hour rule comes in and it and it affects me. But now that I'm at 2,300 hours, I see kind of the benefits of a 1,500-hour 15 15 rule and why it's in place. And I can kind of take my emotion out of it now that I've gone past that. And I can see that that was a smart move and that maybe it's the best move for this career, even though it might have caused pilot shortages, whatever you want to call. But I think that getting the best and most qualified pilots in the seat. And there's definitely an argument to be made for programs and training that, that can get pilots to an effective first officer level at 300 hours. I know they're doing quite a bit in Europe along those lines uh, and really around the world, and, and we're pretty rigid in our ways. And the whole 1,500-hour thing came because of a lawsuit, because of an accident, and all these other things. And so it, it kind of happened in this arbitrary way, but it had some silver lining in what happened that that if you look positively at the situation if you know if you're a glass half full or half empty sort of person <laughs> yeah. if you look at it half full then um it, you know it, i think it does end up being a good situation for most pilots and we got to deal with it anyway so we may to, as well yeah. uh may as well make light of it that's part of the deal being a pilot adversity is going to be thrown your way and you have to learn how to handle that and how to react to it so no matter what you do in aviation you're always going to have adversity uh, yep. And it's true. You know, I, I just went through some more training myself. Um, it was much more difficult than I thought it would be. And I'm still not where I need to be. You know, I, I kind of expected to be able to come to Alaska this summer after I got my training done and fly float planes for a charter and, and do several things. But it's like, no, actually, here's another barrier you need to go through. Here are more hours that you need to get. And so now I'm thinking, well, how do I get those? You know, it, it it's always something. Always and something. If you don't have that persistence as a pilot, you're just never going to get there. You, you almost have to have a blind eye to it and just power through. Yep, that's very true. Well said. So let's go back to your training a little bit more right now. Talk about the private pilot training. What? So like you obviously had a little bit of aviation knowledge. You so like you said, you played video games, you flew simulators, you kind of had the love for aviation. Was flying like everything you thought it was going to be when you first started? Do you have any struggles like? falling in love with flying or thinking about this being your career or was like from your first flight, you knew this is exactly what you wanted to do. I knew it was what I wanted to do. I, I knew pretty early and I actually didn't struggle very much as a pilot really in any way in the private pilot training. And that's not because I'm some sort of prodigy 
it's because I had a lot of like practice beforehand being in flight simulation at the time. I was used to flying an airplane, used to reading the instruments, um, even had some of the navigation things down. And even to the extent where I was using some online things to communicate with air traffic control. So I even had those, uh, those motor skills with my tongue, if you will, for, uh, for speaking on the radio that were already, um, coming along. Now I have to say that, uh, a caution there is that a computer does ne- not fly and will never fly like a real airplane. And sometimes I even say that they fly like two different, two completely different things, but it's the visuals and, you know, the, the muscle memory of yes, turning the ailerons left turns the airplane left. No, it's not the exact same control movements. It would be in a real Cessna, but it's pretty close. So a lot of those things really helped me get ahead of the game when I went and did my private training. And then, of course, I mentioned having done my ground knowledge my senior year before I went to my um, freshman year of college really helped me out a lot. And then, of course, with the way the 141 programs are, you know, they have a, a binder for you and they go through lesson by lesson. It's very structured. And so, honestly, most of the time through my 141, I had no idea what I was what was next or what was behind me. I was just taking it one step at a time. I don't feel like I had a lot of setbacks. I was just kind of cruising through and <laughs> and did it. Now, that was my private pilot. It was completely different in in other parts of my training and I would say I would say if anything my private pilot training was the anomaly to what the rest of my training was like. What was the rest of your training like? What was instrument and commercial like for you? So, I went through instrument training uh, in our own airplane, that airplane that I had flown in Iowa that I told you about, um, it was a Bonanza, a V-tail, 1956, um, had some upgrades. And so, I, you know, I had the basic six with it and had a, a good GPS and autopilot. So pretty good airplane, high performance, all that jazz. And we really wanted to use the airplane to do instrument, but it turns out that it just, it wasn't really in the cards in the Rocky mountains where I was flying. Cause we could not get above any weather to get it done. However, it didn't mean that I, I still didn't attempt to do my training. And I had an instructor, my original instructor on my instrument training. It just was not a copacetic relationship. And, um, <sighs> The training didn't go well. It was one of these accelerated courses that uh, that I was trying to cram everything into one week, and we ended up. Well, I I would put this on the the uh, responsibility of the instructor, but we ended up doing my long cross country. We ended up flying into um, icing conditions. We built an inch and three quarters of ice on the airplane. Oh wow! We were. We were on the verge of declaring an emergency, and even then, I, I was I was so new to all of that that I'm not sure that we would have, you know, because I I really didn't know a whole lot at the time. Anyway, it was crazy. Looking back, it was absolutely crazy the things that I was going through in that training. I ended up going to the check ride finally, having been determined by the instructor that I was ready. I wasn't really ready. I didn't pass my check ride. I I failed. Um, I felt the VOR approach, I think. That's the one thing I had to redo, but I didn't go back and retake it because I just said to myself, you know what, I'm not comfortable instrument flying. I shouldn't be doing this. The aircraft we're flying can't do it, so what's the point? So I kind of let that whole thing lapse. 
Later on, we came back with an upgraded Bonanza, turbocharged, um, brand new sort of thing. But this time, my approach was much different. I had a little bit more experience now under my belt. I had built a few hundred more hours by that point. I got a super great instructor, local guy that was a former high school teacher. He's an educator. He, he did a great job. We took the airplane and we went to the Oregon coast for three days and we did nothing but do actual IFR, um, ILS approaches, holds, uh, everything. And there just came a point in that training. I remember I was in, uh, we were in Northern California on an approach to Crescent City and I just remember it all clicked. It's like my hands were doing things, you know, going and reaching and, and changing the course and doing this. And I was making that radio call and doing this. And it all, all just clicked. And I knew at that point it was time to go and do my my instrument training. So that's more the MO for me. Like I need a little bit more time to work into it. And uh, and I, I also am of the mentality that I want to do it right. I want to do it to competency and proficiency, not just to pass the test. And I, I had the luxury and do have the luxury of, of, um, of doing that financially. And, and even if it is still a challenge financially, I just tell myself, hey, you have no right to have a commercial ticket. You have no right to have an instrument ticket or a flight instructor certificate if you really know what you're doing. So that's been my mentality with my further training is competency first and worry about the finances later sort of thing. And that's counterintuitive for a lot of people that really kind of hang on to the dollars aspect of training. But once I get that ticket, I'm going to use it. So I may as well know how to do it. I can kind of understand what you're talking about when you say like you want to be competent, you want to do the best pilot you can be and how all of a sudden you just had this like moment where it all clicked, right? So Mm -hmm. instrument flying is so much different than anything that you've done before, like scans with your eyes, talking, reaching for things, twisting things, programming things, ILS. There's just a lot going on, right? So you need this, you need a lot of practice. Some, you're not gonna, there's no like set time limit on when you're gonna be perfectly be ready to be an IFR rated pilot. Like you have to find that on your own. It might come easier to some, it might come, it might take more time for others. But if you need more time, there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean you're a bad pilot. You can fail a check ride. It's not a big deal. If anything, like we talked about earlier, it's a whole adversity thing, how you handle it, what you do. You realize that you weren't ready. So you took more time, more training to become a better pilot. And then that helps you in the future because you said that you want to use these tickets. You don't just want to have them for ratings. And I mean, there's going to be a day where you're going to get yourself in a really nasty weather flying day and you need to count on your skills, count on your instincts, count on your competency to get you out of it. Yeah, definitely. And and when I ended up getting my instrument ticket, at that time we had a capable airplane. It was a, again a turbo turbocharged or turbo normalized actually G36 Bonanza, so Garmin. It was such a nice airplane. Almost cheating when it comes to instrument stuff. <laughs> but from day 1 I was using that airplane. I would file IFR flight plans, I would fly in instrument conditions. I was very good at finding windows to get out. Um, around icing, the kind of stuff that happens in in uh, the Rocky Mountains. So I utilize that ticket pretty heavily. And I, I think for the time I have, I have quite a bit of actual instrument time because I actually used it a ton. So that's kind of the perspective I had. And, and I, even, I even told the DPE that the second time around, I sat down, I said, listen, I this is the system I have, and I was paperless at the time. This is in 2008 is the, um, 
It's the first year the iPad came out, I think. Nice. So ForeFlight wasn't even a thing. I was actually using a Windows tablet with the Jepson charts on it and uh, just a kind of a totally different scenario. Anyway, so I told the DPE, hey, this is, this is what I have. This is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to manage my flights. And I plan on flying right away. And then, you know, from that point, it was up to me to, to prove that to the DPE. And I think, honestly, what I've learned in my uh, subsequent ratings with my, with my commercial and CFI is that's actually what DPEs want to see. They very much look for the management of how you're going to do things as much as they do you know, you knowing this bit of knowledge or that bit of knowledge. In fact, that's the way the FAA has been moving is they want to see that that you are the pilot in command. You're thinking about from step one all the way through planning and execution how you're going to do things. And if you come prepared like that to a check ride, man, it goes smooth. It's just it just clicks right along and and then there aren't a lot of gotchas because you're just showing them, hey, this is how it's done. And and then once they hand you your temporary temporary certificate, you go out to the ramp, you fire up, and you go do the real thing, you know. So that's kind of my mentality on it, and I think it's gone. Uh, think it's gone pretty well. Yeah, no, it sounds like it has, and that's a great mentality to have. And any any DPE will love having someone come up, show that they're prepared, talk to them like they know what they're doing, and just kind of handle the situation. A lot of people can fly well. What really separates aviators is the thought process and the knowledge that they have. And like you said earlier, understanding human factors, understanding don't be macho, don't be any of those. Just leave those out of it and just respect the airplane, respect all situations, and you'll be you'll be fine. Definitely. And I was going to say um, about instrument flying kind of along, along those lines is it's about knowing the system. You've got to know how the entire air traffic system is working and what they're expecting from you step to step. And if you understand how everything is flowing and working, you can start working with air traffic control and then they'll work with you. It's this it's this reciprocity that works great. When you know what they need, then they're going to you know scratch your back as well. So I found that once I really understood how the instrument system worked in the air traffic uh, system, Man, things started clicking along really well. I knew the flow of things. I knew that you know when a, uh, a an arrival went to an approach, an approach went to um, a landing, and all that sort of stuff. So you can start to build how this stuff is actually going to work. But when you're going through the training, just like anything else, it's often so compartmentalized and not not really shown to you in that complete form at any time. Honestly, because a lot of the times. Going back to the instructor conversation, the CFI conversation, a lot of these instructors that are teaching instrument training haven't actually done any actual instrument flying themselves. <laughs> right. And that's where you get into a beautiful area in Part 61 because then you get guys that are retired military or, or active flyers, you know, and they're just flying part time with you, um, instructing. And man, they've been there and they've done that and they've seen things that you will never see. Because things are so much easier these days with flight and all that. So um, it, it's just uh, it's pretty cool to, to bridge that gap with instrument flying. Because if you can understand the system, you've pretty much got it at that point. And then I really encourage people, of course, knowing how to safely do it. But I really encourage people to go out and actually use it. Get in the clouds. You know, that's what your training's for. Take it one little step at a time, just like anything else. Don't go out in 
in quarter mile visibility and shoot an approach to minimums your first time out, but you know, work your way into it. And honestly, along those lines, instrument flying is one of the most beautiful types of flying and one of the most enjoyable because uh, it actually ends up becoming pretty easy once you know how the system works. Everything is just kind of, a lot of things are done for you and you don't have to worry about a lot of the aspects of flight planning and things that you do with uh, with a private, for example. Instrument flying becomes for me, it's fun. Like I really enjoy it. It's kind of a challenge for me. Now I don't like doing it every single time. I don't always yeah. love shooting approaches down to minimums with, no. I'm a single pilot IFR cargo guy right now. So it's a uh, half my flights are always through thunderstorms or doing silly approaches that people shouldn't be doing and don't want to be doing, but it's just part of the game, but it's, it's fun. It can be entertaining. It can be challenging, but at the same time, you need to respect the airplane, respect the weather. Remember that no flight is the same. Just because you've done this before doesn't mean it's going to happen right again. So you got to be careful at the same time, but do know that it does get fun and it is worth it. Yeah, definitely. That's that's a good summary because, yeah, I mean, you can't do uh, you can't do total whiteout conditions right from takeoff to landing. That's exhausting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but uh, but that's not really how things work. I mean, it's so rare to have a flight like that. Really, there's part VFR in between and part actual IMC. Um, so it's, it's very cool to be able to, to work your way into that environment, which as a private pilot without an instrument certificate, you're kind of limited to all the visual stuff. But once you start adding the instrument stuff, it of course adds some complexities, but it also adds a great deal of beauty as well. Popping out of the clouds when you're climbing is so cool. And seeing the airport, finally getting an airport in sight when you're shooting a challenging approach is very rewarding when you see that you're dead on center line and you just shot the most beautiful approach of your life. So it's it's definitely worth it. And I'd recommend anyone to do it. Yeah. And a little trick for you guys that get your instrument rating or haven't used it a whole lot. Here's a little tip for you. You can request a block altitude from air traffic control, which means you don't have to keep like your perfect 4,000 feet, 5,000 foot, 6,000, whatever altitude, they'll actually give you between 3,500 and 5,000 that you can work because there aren't a lot of people in the area. So one thing I did a couple times is I'd request that block altitude and then I'd get right at cloud top and just cruise right at cloud top like at 250 knots. And it's even better when it's sunset or something. It, it's just awesome. Yeah, you can't no, do that really in cool. any other type of flying. You cannot. And it's, yeah, like you said, IFR flying is just some, it's pretty sweet. And you get to see a lot of cool sunsets and a lot of cool sunrises and stuff like that. And that is a good idea to go ahead and request a block altitude. Because a lot of times in IFR, there's not going to be many people out. They're going to be afraid to go flying. So you have more room but always ask before you do anything. Yeah, you, you have never, to ask. Yeah, ATC is going to be okay with it if you ask, but once you start deviating without talking to ATC, that's when things are going to go bad. Yeah. In fact, you know, that that original instrument instructor I had, he was doing that. He was changing his altitude without requesting. And um, I remember Seattle Center getting on the radio and just reaming him a new one. It was it was pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, you can't just do that. So uh, please don't. If, you, if you're listening to this podcast or you watch any of Chris's stuff with Angle Attack, uh, we never told you that you can change your altitude whatever you want. You do need to ask. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's really funny. But yeah, so I kind of heard you say you so you stopped your IFR. How long was it before you actually picked it back up and finished your check ride, your IFR check ride? Was it a long time length? Or was oh, it, it, yeah, it was, it was like two years, I think, okay, if nice. not more. Yeah. It was a long time. I, I just... Really, it boiled down to not necessarily my skills because I could have got that there, but um, 
there wasn't a point in doing that if we didn't have an airplane capable of doing it. Because one thing that we had a challenge with when we were in the icing conditions is we couldn't climb above the clouds. And we only had a couple hundred feet to go, but if we would have been able to go from where we were at, which is like 13,300 if I remember correctly, and go up to 15,000, we would have been out of the icing conditions, but we just couldn't do it. So, and then of course, if you think about flying east from Salt Lake City over to the Denver area, there are very few MEAs that are lower than 13,000. You can get up there, I think around that altitude through Southern Wyoming, but, um, you know, fat chance trying that going straight up over the top. Yeah. And you don't want to be doing that in the IFR and icing in the Rockies. That is just a death sentence right there. Exactly. And, you know, even people talk about mixing some of those things because, you know, you're single pilot IFR. I was all doing single pilot IFR as well. Some people say they won't do single pilot IFR at night. Some people say they won't do it at night over rocky or uh, mountainous terrain. There are different combinations that because of people's personal minimums they're not willing to do. And I, I if I remember correctly, it's been a while now. It's been about um, seven or eight years since I flew in that area. But if I remember right, uh, I wouldn't do I wouldn't do it at night in IFR over over terrain like that but i would do over terrain at night if it was clear yeah so i just you know i have my own personal minimums that way just depends on who you are yeah it's good to have personal minimums especially when you're the only one flying you're not flying for a company it's hard to have personal minimums when you do fly for a company it expects to have things done but yeah good luck (laughs) but at the same point there comes a point in your career and in that job necessarily where you need to make the best decision for you. And sometimes that is saying no. Sometimes they will ask you to do a job that is not safe, that is out of the regs, that is not okay. And it is okay to say no. You need to learn how to say no. People are going to try to get you to kill yourself or do stupid things when it's not your certificate or your life on the line. But you, <laughs> at the same time, there's a job to be done and you need to figure out an alternative. Don't just say no. Figure out a different way around. Be like, hey, let's wait till this time period because then we can yep. fly it's going to clear up or hey what if we waited what if i it's going to take an extra hour but i'm gonna deviate to the south around everything or deviate to the north have a plan don't just say no i'm gonna quit or anything like that but just try to figure yep. it out yep and that's what my mo was you know i i told you that i got really good at reading the weather because i um we didn't have we didn't have any anti-ice or de-ice on the bonanza so we we couldn't mess with any icing even potential but I would find a hole, you know, I'd find a hole to get out or a time or whatever that would work out. And, um, so it's like, you know, no, we can't depart at 8am, but if we wait till about 11, then it's looking good because then we'll slide out and you get south of the weather and then it clears up from there. So yeah, you got to find that sort of stuff that, that works out well. And of course, you know, when you get up into like a PC 12, like you have, your options start to open up anymore, even more where, you know, you can, you can fly into icing and do some other things you couldn't do with, with other equipment. So it just depends. It does depend. It depends on the weather. It depends on, there's a lot of factors in there. And you said, you mentioned the PC 12. And when I upgraded from the caravan to the PC 12, it was amazing because obviously a caravan, you're just sitting there at 8,000 feet going through the worst of the weather, all the bad icing, all everything. I mean, you can climb higher, but the caravan really likes to settle lower, like 8,000 to 10,000 feet. And that's where we used to fly all the time. And you'd be in the middle of every thunderstorm, every, <laughs> everything. 
And I don't know if you guys know or if you personally know much about the caravan, but it is not the best plane for icing for what they made. Mm. So that thing ices up fast. It catches. There's a lot of you really need to be paying attention when you're flying the caravan and you can't get behind that plane at all or else you're going to be in trouble. So, yeah, going to the PC-12 where I can climb now to, to 270 and I can my ground speed is sometimes over 350 knots. It's just really cool and really fun. Right. And honestly, even in the Bonanza, um, it would hold manifold pressure, full manifold pressure up to 25,000 feet, flight level 250. And I've had plenty of flights, you know, not really that high, but at 20,000 feet where we are just above everything. Yeah. And it really makes a big difference. It, it, it it's in between that 15,000 and 20,000 foot range. If you can get above that, you can get, get above most weather anyway. So sure. it really improves. For sure. No, that's definitely a good point. So let's go to your, so you finished your instrument and now let's go to your commercial. Was your commercial easier than your instrument, would you say, or would you say you still found a little bit of trouble in your commercial training? The commercial training, this is going to surprise you um, because I haven't heard a lot of people having this amount of trouble, but the commercial rating was my hardest rating ever. Okay. Why, why <laughs> yeah, did you think and, that? And I don't really, I don't really fully understand it, but um, <laughs> I, I think it was, it was more so the amount of time between when I was flying the Bonanza, which of course is a, is an airplane you could use for commercial rating because it's, um, it's a complex airplane, also high performance, but that's not required for a commercial rating. So it's a complex airplane. I have, you know, hundreds of hours in, in complex airplanes and I'm going into my commercial rating thinking, you know, I've got this thing in the bag. It's going to be really easy. I've flown these types of airplanes a ton. And, uh, and I've been in the, the aviation industry for, you know, a decade or whatever, but it didn't turn out that way at all. Um, my skills had lapsed and my knowledge had lapsed a lot more than I thought they had. And I decided to go to Southern California to do my training, which was a good idea because obviously the weather isn't super good in Alaska. Not a lot of people fly complex airplanes up here, at least not retractable gear airplanes. Yeah. And I was going down there for the weather and because my wife's family was nearby. So, you know, it was a good decision, but I got down there and it was the, the hundred year storm for, <laughs> for weeks while I was there. And so I was fighting with weather on a short time frame. I was totally not where I was supposed to be training wise. I hadn't prepared like I needed to. Yes, I had the written done at a fairly high score, but I just wasn't ready and it wasn't going well. And, and so pretty early on with, with the instructor I was working with, we just said, you know what, this isn't going to happen in the time frame that we need. Um, cause I already had like airline tickets to go out, talk about pressure. Yeah. Right. Um, so it just wasn't working out. So we said, okay, you know, plan B. And then we started to work on a plan B and eventually it worked out, but man, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong with my commercial training. I mean, to the point where I had a date with the DPE and he got food poisoning oh and my he gosh. was, he was hospitalized because of the food poisoning. <laughs> and then it was just, you know, one thing after another, anything you can imagine that could happen did happen. It was the, the rating of Murphy's law. If I was going to say so, Murphy's law came out strong for you. Yep. And, uh, and I had to work hard for it and it, it really, honestly, it really tested my persistence and it tested my, um, it tested my fortitude and my commitment to really what I wanted to achieve. And I did question it at times, but it eventually got to the point where it was kind of like groundhog day. 
I'd wake up every day really hoping that the weather wasn't going to be forecasted like it said it was forecasted, but of course it was, so I couldn't go flying again. But it got to the point where I said, you know what? I'm not leaving California until this is done. I'm I'm here until it gets finished. And so there were no other options. I didn't leave myself any other options. It was just kind of open-ended. You know, this is going to take what it takes to get this done. And it's kind of when I intentionally made that decision that uh, if you want to get all cute, the universe started to roll in my direction and things started to improve. And within a week, I was a commercial pilot. So nice. Uh, it was tough, though. It was yeah. not easy from from even flying the Piper Arrow all the way up through the radio communications because Southern California is not Alaska, apparently, <laughs> in terms of how people talk on the radio. Yep. And it was just one thing after another. So um, now the cool thing about that is I faced just about every challenge that someone could face. And so from an instructor's point of view, which is what I worked on next, I could empathize with every single one of those things, you know, finances, time, having trouble with the airplane, having trouble with the area, uh, family pressures. We had a brand new baby at the time. It was just one thing after another was, was kind of on my back about it. So I'm, I'm happy that it turned out the way it did. It was hell at the time, but it was definitely worth it. Yeah. And I like how you said how, you admitted that you had doubts. You had doubts that this is something you wanted to do, or that you wanted, you still wanted this to be your career. But you found a way past that. Is there any? Because th- I know a lot of people have doubts. I had doubts when I'm going through training. Because let's face it, training—it's it's called training. It's not the easiest thing in the world. You have to work hard. You have to count on so many outside factors to help you achieve your goal. Like you said, weather, maintenance of airplanes your dpe got sick i mean you cannot forecast any of these things you don't know when they're going to happen and it's going to happen when the weather like your dpe gets sick when the weather's really nice and he's healthy when the weather's not nice (laughs) so it's true it's just how it works but you found a way past that and i think that's really important for anyone listening to this to understand that it's okay to doubt it it's okay if one day you might not feel like this is what you want to do maybe that means you need to take a day off and do something fun and kind of take your mind off something or maybe you just you just need to reset. You need to sit down and just kind of rethink how you can get this done faster. Like you said, you came up with a game plan that you're not leaving California until you get your check ride done, until you get that ticket, until you get your certificate. So you, you just got to create a game plan. You got to understand that things happen. That's just how aviation is. If you fly for an airline, things are going to happen. When I talked with, with uh, Kevin, I'm the drizzle. He said how he still has to find coffee filters. He's a captain of a, of a major airline and the flight attendants asked him to find coffee filters. He has to do things that he doesn't want to do. There's always going to be days when you question yourself and why you're doing this. So it's really cool to see that you saw that you question yourself, but you set up a game plan to get you through that. Right. And, and the game plan and, um, I would say my own personal character really, really is what pushed me through. And, you know, that's, that's a matter of who I am and who I've been over the years, but it, it's, it's something you need as a pilot. And I think people see it at all stages. You know, I see it in many of the students that I have now going through their private training is man, there's just, there's a lot of stuff that tries to get in the way of you achieving these things. And honestly, I I do think that it is this part of the universe that kind of works against us doing what we were meant to do or what's best for us. Cause when we're on the right path, it seems like 
things don't always go very easy. You know, it, it, it seems like there are things in the world that try to derail us. I don't really know what it is. I don't know what that power is, but it definitely seems like it's there. And then you mentioned another word. You said fun. The problem with the, the first part of my commercial training, it was, you know, it was all business. I was going in, I wasn't having a lot of fun and I suffer a whole lot in my training and my flying ability when I'm not having fun. So when I had kind of decided, hey, I'm just going to embrace this situation. It is what it is. And I'm going to have fun while I'm here and enjoy this process. Just let the process play out. And uh, from then on out, I relaxed. I didn't care if I messed something up. It's like, okay, what can I learn from it? Let's move on. And you almost have to, in a way, emotionally disconnect yourself from your training. You have to say, okay, yes, this is my goal, but I'm not going to let myself get all down because today didn't go well or I didn't get a fly or because this happened or that happened. Okay, now what? What's the next step? What's the next step? What's the next step? Just one thing after another until you're finally there. And it, with every rating, it's this way, but you finally get there, you get your ticket. You're like, holy cow, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, how did I, I'm a commercial pilot. This is crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm a commercial pilot. Oh, I'm an instrument pilot. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I, I think that typically happens to everybody. Um, but I have no regrets, you know, and I, I always tell people, you will regret not getting a license, but you will never regret getting a license. I've never seen anyone regret getting a license. So that's just the way it is. Yeah. And it's really cool to tell people you're a commercial rated pilot, even though you're flying like 172s or whatever, but you're still a commercial pilot. They don't know any difference. It was kind of, it was a few weeks later after I got my commercial pilot license that I realized it was actually kind of a sad realization, but also very cool at the same time. I realized I'm not a private pilot anymore. I mean, technically on paper, I just swapped out my private pilot license for a commercial license. I'm no longer a private pilot anymore. Yeah, for sure. Then I'm like, wow, that's actually really cool. Yeah, I'm a commercial pilot now. So I can no longer say I'm a private pilot. I'm actually a commercial pilot. And then, of course, you have to explain to people, no, I don't fly for an airline. No, I I don't fly big jets. No, I... Technically, I can be paid to fly, but no, I can't take you up for a flight right now because I'm not allowed to. So yeah, it's kind of funny. Even, don't even get me started on a common carriage and all that. It's just too oh, difficult man. to explain. <laughs> but it's funny when you mention how people, like when you're talking about, yeah, I'm a commercial pilot. Like, oh, what airline do you fly for? It's like, well, there's a lot of other things other than airlines. They're like, oh, what kind of plane do you fly? You fly one of the small planes? You're like, not really. I mean, I fly a PC-12. It's kind of big. Like, But they're like, oh, so yeah. it's not a 747? And you're like, no, it's not. <laughs> but it's still a really cool plane. Get off my back <laughs> yeah yeah in fact i would uh i would argue that it's even cooler than a 747 to be honest yeah i would i would probably say that some people flying the 747 wish they had the chance to fly a pc-12 so i'm trying not to to have this kind of like envy or like glorify flying in the airlines i'm trying to truly enjoy where i am right now and then trying to enjoy my process of getting to where i want to go and i think that's important even in your training like you said like we were talking about just like enjoy where you're at Like, I know it kind of sucks. I know that it's hard. I know that it's not easy, but you're building the foundation for your career right now. And you're, you're going to be with some of your best buddies you ever had. You're going to be some of the, you're going to be, most of you will probably be in college or you'll be 18 in your, or you're in your early twenties and you're just going to be having a lot of fun. So just enjoy it while you're doing it. Definitely. Cause each stage is, is definitely unique. When I went through my private, I just think how amazing those days were. You know, I just, I I dream like I daydream about what it was like to go through my private training. I remember getting 
a dry pack of ramen noodles and <laughs> and driving my car to the airport, which didn't have an operable driver's side door. And I had to start it with a screwdriver. And then I'd get a Mountain Dew once I got there from the machine and sit down and do ground with my instructor. It it was just, it was, you know, definitely nostalgic. And then, you know, even as bad as the initial part of my instrument training was, even I have good memories about that. Just each stage is so unique. And like you say, you have to enjoy where you're at. And it all comes down to the people. Like if you're not enjoying the people you're flying with, if you're not enjoying your instructor, instructor, if you're not enjoying the flight school you're at, switch something up because, man, this mm-hmm. process is supposed to be fun, supposed to be enjoyable. It can be enjoyable and fun while it is also extremely difficult. Um, so that's just my perspective on it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's a great perspective to have. And that perspective is going to help you get through the tough times as well. Because when you're down on flying, when you're thinking about not doing anymore, whatever it may be, you look back on the times when you had fun. You look back on the private. You look back on your instrument. Remember your when you first soloed, you remember that feeling and you hold on to that and you have that help you propel your career and help you continue. Yeah, definitely. Yep. You're a commercial rated pilot. What do you do next? Like what's your game plan? What was your attack on either getting hired? Did you want to eventually do the airlines? Did you want to become a freight dog or CFI? What was your, what was your next, next step? So I actually got my commercial in February, February 13th is when I got it. Um, and my game plan, my end goal is to be an instructor. I'm passionate about aviation instruction. I think that aviation instruction is fundamentally broken in a lot of ways, and I'm passionate about doing my part to fix that. So I can't get there unless, of course, I get the credential and I start working toward that. Um, So that was my next step, and honestly, in a way, my last step, but it's as they say with aviation, you're always learning. So it's just a a ticket to learn at the end of the day, which I knew at the time I've been through this enough now that I know that, that each rating is just another ticket to learn. Right. So, um, went through my, went through my, uh, my CFI training, which was very unique because I didn't just go to a school and kind of cram it, or I didn't stay locally and work with one instructor. Actually, went down and uh, I did a podcast about uh, about some of this, but I went down to North Carolina first, flew with Dave Herwig there. I know you're going to have him on the show soon. At GK um, Dave, shameless plug. Yep, GK Dave <laughs> on Instagram. Yep. He, if you want to see a passionate instructor that's doing it right, it's this guy. And you really got to watch his Instagram stories because – He's got like eight flights a day with students. Yeah. It's just like, oh, the weather's bad. Oh, the weather's good. And this guy just soloed. And yep. it's just so cool to see the process. Um, they fly at this really cool little airport there in, in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina called um, Gray's Creek. Uh, just unique. And it was cool to spend some time with him there. So I flew with Dave. We flew down to Sun and Fun, spent time at Sun and Fun. I flew with another instructor from Sun and Fun over to Texas. Ended up doing my tailwheel endorsement in Texas. Nice. I was there for about a week, uh, flew in, flying in a Super Cub, uh, spraying, uh, we landing in cow pies and spraying the poop everywhere all over the wings. <laughs> it was such a blast. Oh, that's awesome. And then uh, went from there up to Oshkosh, of course, off-season, not during AirVenture, mm-hmm. and flew with a guy there um, that is a, a good friend of mine and one of 
the industry's best instructors. And I just, I wanted to learn from the best. And it was, it was such a neat experience because I got to, uh, I got to stay with he and his wife and, um, his name's John Dorsey for those that are, are close to the community and many people know who he is, but, yeah. uh, so I got to stay with he and his wife and we'd wake up in the morning and we'd have some of his healthy cereal and we'd sit down <laughs> at the table right away and like get into our, our ground for the day. And then I would be integrated into what he was already doing as students. So a lot of the time I'd be sitting in the back of the airplane, just observing, or I'd be watching him taking calls or juggling a schedule and, and doing all of those things and having the conversations in between as we were driving to and fro. Um, so it was a really unique experience because that entire month that I was gone, I was focused on each person I flew with, with Dave and with Trace Clinton and then with, uh, with John Dorsey. I was focused on getting their perspective on training and seeing what it was like in their part of the world seeing the ins and outs of how they did it. And I got such a broad perspective of how to do things as a CFI and even even some things to do as a flight school that um, I felt it was those things that really prepared me for my my CFI training. And then when I went and did my check ride for my CFI, this, again, is an anomaly, but it was actually the easiest check ride I've ever done. No way. That's crazy. Yep. <laughs> It was just so nat. It it felt so natural to me, you know, because this is what I've really been working toward, and I've had some, um, you know, I'm sure the podcast has helped some. My own podcast has helped, and a bunch of these other things I've done in the past that have helped me prepare for this moment. So, easiest check ride I've ever done. It was enjoyable. Um, not to say that's not to say that I was I was throwing a softball or anything, you know. Yeah. I, I I didn't have an exorbitant long ground session or anything I, I didn't feel like it was uh it was tilted in any any way that way but um i just i went in there and i acted like an instructor and it worked out that's good you did what you had to do look sounds like you really kind of followed three instructors and learned how they teach and you took the best of the three worlds and put it together and created your own so i think that's the best way to do it and that's really cool you did that yeah and i man i learned so much every time i see an instructor teach I learned so many different cool little things on on how they do it and their perspective and um that's just what I'm passionate about. So again, that was that was and that is my end game. I'm not planning on airlines. I I would love to fly a big jet someday, but I it's it's not my passion. It's not really where I'm going. I, my passion is in the education part of it. Uh that begins with one-on-one with students working their way through, helping them with challenges. You know, even just uh, this last week, I, I have a student I'm working with that is uh, is almost a check ride. He's come a long way, and we're regressing a little bit in some some things we need to work on on short final and getting getting the target down and all those things. And so I'm having to work through those challenges, but it's just so much fun. It's so much fun to work through those and find the little bits and pieces of information or insight I can give him to help him nail it. And then when he nails it, it's just the best feeling in the world. It's the best feeling for him. It's great for me. So I find a lot of fulfillment from it. Oh, yeah. And I love how you said that you want to be a flight instructor. Like, that's your end goal. Like, that is so cool. People coming into this career, they think about flight instructing. They think about how a lot of them don't get paid very well, how their schedule is terrible, or how all this. But 
you can make it what you want to make it. If you truly devote your life to it, I'm sure you can make good money doing it. I'm sure you would enjoy the schedule because it's something that you love to do. So it's really awesome that this is something that you want to do and this is a service that you want to give to the community. And I'm really thankful that you're willing to do that because I think it's instructors like you guys. And I mean, I'm not discounting any other instructor, but I just love instructors that love what they do, that love to show up every day, love to teach, love to give the gift of aviation to other people because we're all here to help each other. We're all here to help someone go from point A and get to point B. And there's, like we talked about earlier, it's going to be, it's not a straight path. Everything's different. Like you said, your CFI was the easiest check ride you ever had where someone else, it's going to be the hardest check ride. So you take exactly. those experiences and then you teach them off that. Yep. Yep, exactly. And, um, you know, those, those are the type of educators and instructors that I surround myself with. And there are so many out there. You know, I think that Safe Society of Aviation of Flight Educators does a fantastic job it's an organization just full of, of great people, high quality people. Um, also, NAFI is doing a really great job, the National Association of Flight Instructors. I definitely like to think of myself more as an educator than an instructor. Um, I think that's a little bit more broad. Yeah, and, I would agree. And there are more areas there because, you know, I, I can even see myself being passionate about teaching STEM programs or ground schools or uh, obviously in the airplane is is definitely great, but um, all sorts of, of education there. And, and kind of along those lines, one of the funnest things I did at Oshkosh this year was I went to the Pilot Proficiency Center and, and flew as an instructor there um, in one of the Redbird simulators. So if you ever go to AirVenture, you can go to the Pilot Proficiency Center and get there early because it, it, the schedule runs out pretty quickly. But you can have an hour session roughly with a professional instructor who will take you through different scenarios and you get to log that, that time and it can count toward uh, training and everything. And, and that was one of the best uses of my time while I was at Oshkosh. And there are so many cool historical things going on, but I was just so excited to get in there, you know, wear the blue vest, uh, sit down and accept students every on, on the cycle and help different people get through certain things. And it was, it was just really neat. And I really enjoyed that morning. I only signed up for one morning, wished I would have done more, but, um, I'm passionate about that. So that's what I want to see. I like to see the on the ground, real progress of what's happening. And, uh, yeah, it's just great. I, I think we need more of that. And I, I try to surround myself with those sort of people. And then there's the other side of that. And, you know, I also share it publicly too in the sense that I am I do a lot of media so I share it on my Instagram share it on my YouTube channel and uh, but I, I always want to be the type of instructor that is actively instructing I don't want to be what Wilbur Wright called a parrot I don't want to <laughs> sit there and talk about flying when I and not actually flying. Right. I'd rather be out doing the real thing. For sure. And you brought up the media part of and your Instagram. Do you got, you want to talk a little bit about that? I know it's uh, if anyone doesn't know, it's at Angle of Attack, and you do some really cool stuff. You just started the series, and it's uh, it's a YouTube series, right? Right. So I started the Angle of Attack show. It's a YouTube series that kind of follows some adventures in Alaska. Um, you know. More than anything in that medium, I really focus on the story of it all rather than just, oh, the flying. You know, I, I think that the, the cockpit videos out there and, and GoPro mounted videos of a good landing here, a good landing there, 
that's cool. And I definitely watch that sort of stuff, but I try to wrap my things in the stories. So going on an adventure, going somewhere with friends or family, and what is the whole process like? What do we think out about before? Where are we actually going? What's the flight like? Um, what are some cool Alaskan things that we see on the other side when we get there? So I think it it gets a little, for some people they said it gets a little too mushy. I don't really care. That kind of Now that I'm getting a couple <laughs> negative comments, it tells me that I'm doing something right. But um, it, it's as much Alaska as it is aviation, and, and it's as much um, friends and family as it is about the flying. So it's this pretty good mix, I think, of, of what aviation means to me and what it's about. Because honestly... I love I love flying airplanes, but that's not why I love aviation. I love aviation because of what surrounds it, because of what airplanes do for us. They they take us places, or or we use the airplane to take ourselves places. I don't, you know, I, yeah. sometimes I personify airplanes way too much. But anyway, <laughs> the airplanes take us places that we couldn't reach otherwise, or at least not practically. And um, and just the people. And the places that surround aviation is what really matters to me. So that's try that's what I try to convey through through my channel, um, through the Angle of Attack show. You can search that. It's I'm sure by now it's kind of registering on Google. And then in terms of my Instagram, that's kind of a mixed bag of aviation photos here in Alaska or or little one minute snippets of instruction or this or that. It's kind of a mixed bag of different stuff that I, different things that I do that, um, that I think are kind of fun. So, you yeah. know, anywhere from, from bears catching salmon in a waterfall to <laughs> just uh, Alaska things, a, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just typical Alaska things, oh, yeah. you know, just, just bears everywhere. Yeah, Catching the um, salmon in the, in the river with your bare hand, you know, just typical yeah. stuff. <laughs> and then you also have a podcast too. Let's talk. I know, your podcast is one of the reasons why I started doing a podcast just because I love the way you talk to people and I love the way you interview other people. So I think it's really cool. And uh, talk a little bit about your podcast and what that's all about. Yeah, so it's actually very much um, similar to this format that you and I are doing. I, I get different people from the industry that I've run across that are are influencers or everyday people that I enjoy. You know, I, I've interviewed everyone from uh, an SR 71 pilot to a guy that just got his private pilot license. So I don't exclude anyone from, from the show. Uh, I, I just kind of approach it holistically and, and get different perspectives in aviation and different walks of life, have a conversation. And, and really at the end of the day, what I want to do is demystify aviation a little bit, just show that it's not that hard to get into. It's really easy to approach it actually, even though Sometimes it seems like it's hard to go out to the airport and talk to somebody. Most people in aviation are pretty cool, and you're going to get some good some good feedback if you go to your local airport. If you don't get it the first time, then you're really likely to get it the second time because yeah. there aren't a lot of people that are jerks in aviation, at least <clears throat> turning away someone that's passionate about it. I feel like it's kind of this unwritten law that, right. that you help people out. So. Uh, the podcast, it, it kind of started out as a flight simulation thing and and staying proficient that way, but I've kind of moved away from the flight simulation thing, of course, getting more into real aviation and then uh, gravitating more toward the interviews. Um, and then in the future, the podcast will become more of actual thoughts and lessons and, and things that I'm going through as an instructor and, uh, and things I can see 
uh, that need improvement. So, for example, right now I'm going through a couple a couple books that are just mind blowing in their simplicity and the way they explain aviation. And the one I'm reading right now in particular is Stick and Rudder, which yep. is a very well known book in aviation, but it still seems like most of the pilots out there haven't read it. Um, <laughs> or at least haven't you, applied it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, gosh, you read the first 20 pages and it's a couple hundred pages long, but you read the first 20 pages and it's, it's mind blowing from an instructor's point of view, having just gone through what the FAA expects you to teach, man, it's such a better way of, <laughs> of, of looking at how an airplane flies. You know, yep. I, I really enjoy that type of instruction. So it's those sort of things I, I look forward to teaching through the podcast. Um, and then of course, more of my media is going to start making its way into videos. Uh, you know, I've got the angle of attack show going, but I eventually plan on doing, um, instructional courses through video and things like that. So giving my own real world twist on it, kind of like what we were going back to or going back to what we were talking about in part 61 is okay. Yes. There's the FAA way of teaching things. And of course that's covered, but what's the context here? What's the real world perspective yep. on this subject? And that's, and that's what I'm passionate about. Yeah. Well, I, I can see that. And that's definitely important in training and teaching these kids or anyone that wants to get into, into aviation. And it's also cool the resources that you're creating because now more than ever, people use the internet for so many things. When I was doing my training, I watched YouTube videos on how to do this or how to do that on how to enter a hold. I use all the resources that are free resources that I can use on my computer to help me do this, whether it's my podcast, whether it's your podcast, whether it's your show, whether it's just any, whether it's just following someone on Instagram, you have these resources that people have created for you to use and you need to use all of them because they're all going to help you learn something new, all going to help you become the, the best pilot you can be. Yep. When I was going through my commercial training, which is actually a kind of a, a rehash of a lot of the private pilot subjects. And also when I was going through my CFI training, I watched this series of videos on YouTube from an instructor called Cindy Holloman, and it's her in front of a whiteboard at a school. I think she's actually in North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. If not, if not North, then it's South Carolina. I think it's North Carolina, though. Yeah. But she is such a rock star. I, it, she, and she's not all showy, and she's not all you know, you know, um, sham wow sort of stuff. <laughs> like she's, she's. Just an instructor teaching the instruction in a methodical, easy to digest way. And I just enjoyed so much watching her stuff, even though like it was not high production value, but the it was very high learning value. And that's what I enjoy and um and and really hope to in my own circle and my own influence to be able to meet um the high instructional value or learning value, because actually the instructional value doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good of an instructor I am at all. It matters how well the students are learning. So that's actually something they teach you in your CFI. When when learning happens, it's actually when the student absorbs what you're trying to teach. Yep. Um, but it needs to be high learning value. But I also think that with my, my past in video, um, that it can be high production value as well. So 
that's what I hope to do on a shoestring budget. And <laughs> right. I think it'll work out in one way or another. Yeah, I feel like aviation is a constant balance between your goals and your dreams and everything you've always wanted to do and then the realism of your bank account. <laughs> and you're like, no, nah, yep. bro, we can't do that today. It's like, but I want yep. to. Yeah. Yep, you got to be patient for sure do. and, and yeah. do things in their season. But, um, you know, and even – it's just one thing at a time. Yeah, exactly that way. I mean, I was looking at a hangar the last few days to try to continue flying through the winter and man, it's expensive. So I'm trying oh. to find someone to, uh, to share the hangar with now and, <laughs> and keep well, flying. So, well, if anyone is listening to this out in Alaska, hit them up, Chris Palmer, angle attack, let them know you'd split a hangar space with them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. well, I'll even put in a mini fridge and stock it. There we go. We got a mini fridge. What else could you ask for? <laughs> well, cool. So let's, uh, I do this little thing called the rapid fire section and it is just going to be some quick questions. Um, I actually just asked some of my followers recently to add some more. So you're going to be the first person to receive the newer questions. Ooh. Yeah. So you're my, that's... you're, you're my lucky guinea pig today. So let's nice. see how it goes. Let's do this. All right, cool. So the first one, it's what's your favorite airplane? And this would be the favorite airplane you've ever flown. 172. I think it's incredibly capable. I know it gets a bad rap and seems a little boring, but it's it's a cool little airplane. That it is. What's your favorite airport? My favorite airport is, I'd say, Soldovia, Alaska. There's a couple of videos on my Instagram of that airport. It's kind of a confined airport. You can't do a normal traffic pattern. It's got trees on both sides. It's tucked into a little small coastal village. That's the best one I've landed at so far. That sounds like a lot of fun. What is or, or I could say no airport. That's the best airport when you're you landing go. off airport. That's pretty cool. Yeah, which uh, I'm sure you get to do more than what we get to do down in the lower 48. Yeah, that's enjoyable. Landing yeah. on a beach or that's awesome. or landing a float plane on a lake. That's where it's at. That's awesome. All right, here's one for you. What's your favorite aviation Instagram account that you follow? Oh. GK Dave is up there in terms of the instructional stuff. He's definitely my favorite instructor online. I, I, cause he's just so passionate about it and he shares it well. Um, and then of course, like many, many other people, Dion Mitten is another great Instagram aviation account to follow. He's actually a good friend of mine, but his work speaks for himself. He's got like 36,000 followers and for good reason. He's, he's just got amazing aviation content and hopefully he'll be up here in a few weeks to, finish off the Alaskan flying season well. Yeah, the his page is awesome, and just the quality of his content is unbelievable. Yep, yep, I love that guy. Yep. All right, here's one. Would you prefer short trips or long trips? Um, I prefer long trips with adventures in between. Yeah. So I'd rather go a long distance and have a lot of little things in between than uh, – just go a short distance, but yeah. I, I, and I think I'd even prefer if we're just doing strictly short to long, I'd still prefer long. Cause like, yeah. I feel like the airplane again is serving its purpose more when I'm putting more, more terrain behind me. I would agree. If you weren't a pilot, what would you want to be? I have never thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've kind of doubled down. There's, there's no other options here. No other um, options. You know, it could be an education still, but um, I do really like media. I like photography. I like videography. So it could end up being something with that. But still, I've I've hardly done any of that work outside the aviation space. So it's hard to imagine separating them. Yeah, no, I could definitely see that. All right. And now we're going to get on to some of the newer ones. 
Okay, cool. What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? That not all instructors are created equal and to seek out the absolute best professional um, and personality fit instructors you can find. It's worth it. Yeah. And it, it, it just builds you up and gets you ready for what you're trying to achieve much quicker and more effectively. It kind of reminds me of, and here comes a stupid little argument, but Apple versus PC. Like I buy an <laughs> Apple all day because I know the Apple's going to last a lot longer than a PC. So right. there you go. No, for sure. That's a good answer. I like that. And then here's one. It's kind of similar to the Ava Instagram aviation question, but who in the industry would you like to meet? Who in the industry would I like to meet? Um, I feel like I've met most the influencers. Um, I rub shoulders with like uh, like Flight Chops and Steve O'Wan Knievo and those guys. In fact, Flight Chops and I usually share an Airbnb when we go to these shows. That's awesome. But it's really, it's really like the World War II uh, heroes that are going away, you know? So the the coolest experience I've had so far in meeting someone out of anyone was I met Dick Cole last year at AirVenture and he is or was Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot during the Doolittle raid and is a really serendipitous moment because I actually got to sit down with Dick Cole outside any event that was going on. No one really knew that he was around and I actually got to talk to him for five minutes and that just stands out to me as the most amazing you know, aviation conversation I've ever had. So that's pretty cool. Those are the sort of people I want to meet. I'm not really into the, the aerobatic guys or even the guys that are on um, on these shows. Like, I'm not really, I'm not really odd by anyone's fame, if you will. Yeah. But I'm odd by people's heroism and selflessness. Perfect. So yeah, that's I what I like. I would agree with you there. All right, here's the one. And what's your favorite thing about aviation? Just overall favorite thing about it. The people, 100% the people. It comes down to um, the the people that you that I meet that are inspired by my content, or the people that I meet that that have a question about aviation, or the people that say, "Hey, that podcast helped me," or "This video helped me," or "This inspired me," um, and also the wonderful people that ha- have helped me along the way in my career. You know, the wonderful people that helped me through my commercial training just recently, my commercial training and, uh, and my CFI training. That's what I value. I, you know, the experiences are really neat, but I just remember the people and the conversations we had and the funny things that happened. That's, that's what matters to me. And that's what I really reach out for and seek these days. When I go to these air shows, I, I don't find myself going to the hangars and looking for what I can buy this new or looking at this new airplane or, or that new thing, I go and find the people, even if, even if they're, um, you know, a follower that wants to meet up, you know, I, I'm totally down for that. That's what I enjoy. Yeah. You said that very well. The people, our community that we have is incredible. And it's kind of like you said earlier, if you love aviation, no one's going to turn you away. It doesn't matter if you come up to me, if you come up to you, come up to Steve-O, come up to Flight Chops, whoever, they're going to want to talk to you. They'll let you, they'll say hi. They'll talk airplanes with you. That's one thing we all have in common. We get to all talk about. So always the people in our, in our industry. It's incredible. Yep. They're just people at the end of the day and they, they're just so helpful. And I don't know. I, that's just the way it is. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you've had that experience too. And 
I I haven't heard much more of the other direction. So again, going back to what I said, uh, the one thing I would have uh, I wish I would have known quality instructors. Really, it's it's surrounding yourself with quality people in aviation, no matter who they are. You know, your insurance agent or the person you're buying your airplane from or whoever it is, they need to be high quality people. And the truth is, it seems like in these circles in aviation, we have a high percentage of high quality people. So it's not going to be too hard to find. That we do. Yeah, it's definitely not too hard to find. All right. I got two more for you. What is the hardest approach you've ever flown or mo- most challenging approach you've ever flown? If you can think of one. Mm, challenging approach I've ever flown. Um, that Soldovia airport is pretty challenging, but I, I don't feel like it was ever outside of my outside of my abilities. I, I remember on that Oregon trip doing IFR, we flew into Astoria, Oregon, and we were doing a VOR alpha approach, and we came in, and we couldn't see the airport at minimums, and so we had to do a missed approach, go into a hold, come back from the other side of the airport, and do an approach in the opposite direction and the winds is like a 40 knot crosswind or something. So I think that stands out as one of the more difficult approaches that I've had to do. Um, and then I also remember when I was in uh, down in Wisconsin for my CFI, this is kind of a recent example of something that got my blood pumping was uh, doing my night currency again because we don't get a lot of night up here in the summer. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I couldn't find the cockpit lights so I couldn't really see things very well inside the the airplane um, doing pattern work there at Green Bay. So anyway, that was something That's that really raised funny. my blood recently. Yeah. You don't really even think about that. It's like, oh, the, the lights are right there. But when you're going to a place where it's daytime 75% of the time, you don't need those lights as much. Exactly. Yeah, That's it's kind of different. All right, last one here for you. What's your favorite airline livery? Hmm. I really like the new Alaska Airlines livery with the with the uh, Aurora type colors, the Aurora Borealis type colors, and I also really like this livery um, from an airline called Edelweiss Airlines. And I'm not sure where they're based. It's obviously in in Germany or Austria or somewhere. But I've always really thought their livery was pretty. Yeah, there's there's a lot of cool liveries out there, and there's yeah, there's just a lot, and that that's cool. Sweet. Well, Actually, are, no, I like your PC-12 livery yeah, the best. there we go. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> Priority Air Charter PC-12, best livery there is. <laughs> and number two, Freedom Fox. Yeah. And hashtag the, Freedom Fox. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag Freedom Fox. Yeah, the Freedom Fox is pretty cool. If you don't know what the Freedom Fox is, go look on his page. He's got some pictures with it, and it's a really cool plane. <laughs> well, cool. All right, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the Pilot the Pilot podcast today. I think it is so cool that even though you have your own aviation podcast, that you realize that it's all about collaboration and not competition, which I'm pretty sure that's what you said to me when I first asked you to come on the podcast. And I can really respect that. And I think it's really cool because it's all about getting people in it, into aviation. It's all about how we can help everyone else because let's face it, someone has helped us get to where we are today. So it's about how we can give back. And I think it's really cool that you are so keen on content creation and that you just are constantly working on something. And that is really cool to see just whether it's angle of attack show or whether it's just anything new that you're coming up with. That's really awesome. So keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure you're a great instructor and you're only going to get better. So if there's anything that we can do to help, please let me know. I'm here for you. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for all you do and keep up the good work and just take it one episode at a time. You'll get there. (laughs) I appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right, buddy. Thanks. Yep. And that is a wrap of episode 21. 
Aviation, thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. As I said earlier, if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, comment on our Instagram, or leave us an email at pilot2pilothq at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for everything. Please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pilot2pilot. We appreciate any and all support that you are willing to throw our way. Aviation, have a great day and happy flying.